Hey everybody, welcome to Literary Disco and Lit Hub Radio, episode 190, Crime Favorites. Our recent episodes have centered heavily on crime, beginning with the graphic novel Cruel Summer, and following up with our in-depth discussion of Todd's process writing his latest crime story collection. So today, we thought we'd widen out and take a look at the crime genre in general and recommend some of our all-time favorites. This is Literary Disco, the last book club you'll ever need. We are Todd, Julia, and Ryder, three old friends who love to read, debate, and sometimes even agree. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me as always are novelist and critic Todd Goldberg and essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel. Hi guys. Hey! This is like a part three, huh? It is. I was thinking about, it's a crime spree. Okay. Okay. Well, Well, it was good to meet Ryder. Ryder, if Ryder was a crime novel, he'd be one that you read in an old bed and breakfast, obviously. I hope I hope you enjoy next week's host, Jonathan Taylor Thomas. (laughs) So mean. I I gotta tell the listeners, I just sent these two folks a suggestion for a crime novel that we can read. I don't think we'll end up reading it, but it has the greatest title I've ever seen in my entire life. Would you guys like, should I tell them? Go ahead. It's called The Crime of the Ancient Marinera. (laughs) (laughs) It's a culinary mystery. Yeah. Yeah. So I didn't know such a category existed. (laughs) Nor did I. (laughs) Why not? Uh, I don't know. Yeah. So is it, is it a kind of a joke crime book? Or is it no, no, like, no. It, what do you think is it's, going on? It's, you know, there? there's that whole genre of cozy crime fiction where it's like, hey, I'm a caterer, and every time I cater a party, there's a dead body. You know, it's one yeah. of those. So this one, though, I, I did some research, and there's recipes in it. So that's oh, nice. Oh, wow, that's kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, like a, I like a recipe with my dead body. Because <laughs> um, you never know how to cook them, you know? Like, you have a general idea, roast, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's got it's got all kinds of it. There, you know, every genre in crime exists. So there's like the cat mysteries, obviously. Mm-hmm. There's the cozy crime. There's uh, the romantic crime, the suspense crime. There's whatever it is I write, sort of comic noir, all these different things. And then there is the crime of the ancient marinara, <laughs> which you know you got to be an intellectual to get that reference. So uh, yeah, <laughs> but which is why I was like. You know what? Let's game recognized game. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's do it as an episode. We'll, we'll continue our crime spree. With, yeah, at, at crime some the point. At some, like, I'm calling it. To... You guys are going to love it. That's my guess. That's my guess. <laughs> at be like, some I had a point, great time. we will read Crime of the Maybe for summer. We'll read Crime of the Ancient Marinara. I, I mean, I, something like that kind of makes sense to me. I guess, like, I get uncomfortable with, I get uncomfortable with some true crime stuff. Like, mm-hmm. uh, I know the most successful podcast in the world for a little while, there was the My Favorite Murder. Mm-hmm. Right. That's, I couldn't listen to that. Like, that made me so uncomfortable. Like, I get the attraction. Obviously, like, I do like crime. I like, and I like true crime stuff too. But when it gets too like isn't this fun and delicious to read about these awful cr- i get so like weird <laughs> yeah. hold on a minute what, is paul lind <laughs> talking about the- no all have right you listen I'm- have you listened to my favorite murder it's like it's like vocal fry on vocal fry like giggling and it's so 
It is so, like, to me, it made me so uncomfortable. Like, in the first episode, they're like, uh, and please don't murder us because we're talking about... And it's like, the, yeah, like, this is kind of weird, guys. Like, I, I don't know. It takes me back to that the, the This American Life about crime and where they talk... They made the point that, like... Uh, you can only enjoy like a murder mystery party if you've never known anybody who's been murdered. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, and like yes. there is something like we don't read like rape fiction for fun, right? Like, right. but for whatever reason, murder and, you know, and I'm not like judging everybody, but there is something because I'm part of this too. Like there is something sort of uh, inoculating about it or for whatever reason we're okay with like people were murdered one by one at the, you know, in the mansion and the butler did it. Like that, like that is... A, a mystery that is fun mm -hmm. and that is kind of weird right i mean i guess in a in a way it's a it's it's allows us to confront the horror yeah. and allows us to uh, address it in some ways but the fact that we don't do it when it comes to like rape or other types of crime is interesting um, i am I so happy you're getting right into this i picked three non-fiction books just because i feel like i'm in the room with the master todd and so mm -hmm. i'm not gonna try to do yeah. fiction at all <laughs> um, you can try but i am fascinated by this because i i like true crime i used to read it I, I would say an average amount of true crime and i really liked serial and i watched you know like the first big series um but lately i've been like enough this is making me really uncomfortable on a cultural level um, and I listened to a couple episodes of My Favorite Murder, and I, I feel like I'm a slightly less critical of you than you because I do kind of get it. Like, I get the draw. And, yeah. you know, like, I think particularly for women, there's this weird borderline zone. Like, you know, I could be murdered. I've come close to being murdered, even in my own imagination. So many times I identify with these victims. Mm -hmm. But it's like, what's the... <laughs> what's the limit because there is yeah. so much there is so, so much. much there there can be a podcast a weekly podcast where people talk about all the murders they've become obsessed with um that's really strange that's well, really well, strange i mean th i know i mentioned this the other day or not the other day but the other episode which was some uh weeks ago when i talked about an essay i was writing about all the tragic crimes that had happened in my life, like in near proximity to me. Right. And that I had forgotten, I don't even know if I mentioned this in the podcast, but I had forgotten that our neighbors in Santa Cruz were victims of a serial murderer. And like that had just sort of like drifted off in the back of my mind. Oh yeah, crazy serial murderer killed everyone in our next door neighbor's house when I was a kid. You know, because there's so much out there mm -hmm. <laughs> that yeah. you even forget the things that are near proximity to you. And yeah. so that piece that I wrote um, about all these crazy crimes, after I wrote it, and, and it's so if you're listeners, if you want to look, it's on um, it's on Crime Reads. Um, and it's called uh, The Killer Outside Me. Um, like after I wrote it, friends and family members are like, oh, you didn't even mention X. I was like, oh my God, I forgot about X. Or you like, what about this guy that we went to college with? I was like, oh my so, God, I forgot this guy we went to college with. Is the thrust of the essay that this in a lot of ways fueled your interest in crime or that you're realizing it, it it's might've inspired it on a subconscious level or. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I knew that it, it fueled an interest in it um, yeah. because it was an obsession from a very young age, particularly about kids that had been abducted. Cause remember Ryder, when we were kids in, in Northern California, like, all those abductions were happening like sort of at once, it seemed. Yeah. Um, 
in well, the, the craziest first... for me was Polly Kloss because that was right. That was, she yeah. was only a year or two younger than me. So like um, Polly Kloss and Steven Stainer and Timmy White and all these these kids that were being abducted right at the same time that um, sort of sensationalized journalism became a thing. Right, um, right. And so we started to see and hear more about this stuff and it became sort of part of the white noise of our growing up. And then, you know, it became our entertainment. You know, Unsolved yeah. Mysteries and America's Most Wanted became our entertainment and, and cops. Like yeah. the it, it stopped being enough to have scripted TV about crime. Now we're getting reality about mm-hmm. crime. And, right. you know, that that whole, the, the start of Unsolved Mysteries, um, America's Most Wanted, and Cops is a easy, easy direct line to all those forensic shows and murder shows that are on yeah. Discovery and, you know, investigative reality and all that other shit that I watch 24 hours a day. <laughs> yeah, awesome. and I mean, it's so, it's so, it's fascinating because I'm, I, I always try and nail, I think for me... The the most interesting part is always the sort of procedural aspect. I think that's yeah. part. Like like when we talk about like serial, like what I loved about that was getting into this nitty gritty. Right? It's like mm-hmm. you have this question: Did this guy do this thing? And then you spend all these episodes being like going through the phone logs, right. looking at maps. You know, and it's even better when it's visual and you can watch it on a TV show and it's like zooming in on here. It's almost like this sort of game mystery process. Like saw and and to me that is analogous to story creation you know that is like trying to figure out the narrative trying to figure out what happened to led to the causality that led to and like you know fundamentally every story is a mystery right like you're Mm. watching a thing or you're reading a thing to try and find out why something happened or how something happened and you know the crime genre for me brings that to the fore and it's soothing it's soothing in a way um because justice or like the point of the story is usually pretty clear Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. In the sense that, like, there is a bad person that did a bad thing, and we are trying to either solve that crime or understand that, you know, or or or, or absolve this person in some cases or whatever it is. It's like there is a bad thing. The moral universe is pretty obvious, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to like say other forms of fiction or storytelling where you don't know necessarily why you're reading it. Like crime is one of those genres where you know why you're reading it. Like you yeah, are I mean, reading it, it to it, dive it, into a world. It brings know? order to chaos. Like, there you, go, yeah. you know, and this is really why I think during the pandemic specifically, people have really gravitated um, to watching these crime documentaries on Hulu or Netflix or whatever, or watching a lot of the true crime stuff at night. I know we've talked about this in the show, you know, over the course of the last several months, or reading a lot of um, true crime stuff or listening to the yeah. podcast. Because when you feel like you're out of control and that nothing is within your ability to you know, to stop things around you. It's actually very gratifying to read about some chaotic thing that a normal person, a cop or detective or whatever, or science, particularly science, figured out, uh, figured out a solve for. Like, you're like, oh, right, right. You know, there's an answer out there for even this seemingly absurd bananas crime that has happened where there was no evidence. Eventually, they find the killer. Or well, maybe they're just nostalgic for a time that you could be close enough to a crowd of strangers for somebody to snap yeah, and stab you. Yeah, that too. <laughs> that also. Nostalgia. Yeah. A little murder nostalgia. I mean, it's got to be a rough time out there for killers and stuff. You're like, oh, God, yeah, I'm more of a public killer guy than a freak in your house and slit your throat, fella. What a weird time. I, 
I haven't looked at the stats. Are murders down? No, they're higher than ever. Oh, God. Oh, because people, people are killing... Are, each other they're right. locked in together <laughs> you know communities right. are stuck with each other so i mean you know it's always the old like it's a family member it's your husband your wife that, that right. and the, those are people all locked in together so murder rates are skyrocketing right now it's worse than i think it's been since like the 70s this it's is my chance yeah no but i think it's very un uncrime story ish types murder <laughs> you know right. we're talking about people locked in a house together for a year bludgeoning uh, someone with a frozen roast yeah, or whatever really <laughs> Um, yeah. All right, so let's uh, let's start going through our favorites now that we've dissected the entire genre. <laughs> the entire genre. <laughs> well, I think there's so many permutations. I feel like you know mm-hmm. we we we've, we've talked about a couple different angles, but it's really it's hard to nail down crime. You know, I mean, even just thinking about your story collection that we talked about, Todd, like comparing the first two stories. Of your, like, those are two very different approaches to crime. Right. You know, you almost wouldn't even consider them the same genre, except for the fact that there's blood and murder inside of it you know like so i don't know it's it's it it, i guess it's 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 easy to oversimplify crime you know Mm -hmm. um so i don't i don't think we should we should probably avoid that because there's so many different versions of it and i mean listeners will have heard me say this before it's like you know as as a genre itself crime is often defined by the perception of quality of the work you know when you describe um the great gatsby or to kill a mockingbird you're talking about a, a noir novel and a uh, and a John Grisham thriller, you know, <laughs> right, right, exactly. And so the the perception of them as not being genre books is because of the quality of the writing um, and their ubiquity in the culture. Um, and well, but, which which comes first, do you think? I mean, I mean, uh, maybe it's that's an unanswerable question, but like sometimes it seems like if a publisher positions something as literary fiction. That really gives it a boost to not be sort of, you know, yeah. uh, ghettoized as crime. It, you know, yeah, I mean, not I mean, that it, it's really a ghetto anymore, but it certainly used to be. It, it, it certainly used to be. And, uh, you know, um, online shopping has changed a lot of the ghettoization of this stuff, to be perfectly honest with you. Yeah. Because you're not walking down aisles looking mm-hmm. at stuff. Um, and ebooks have changed the way people, you know, feel like with their reading erotica, for instance. Like you wouldn't go and read erotica on um, on the train, even if it's you know you're just into it. Like you, you like to read it; that's your entertainment. You you don't want the the shame factor that goes along with it. Well, ebooks have have removed that from mm-hmm. that process. Um, so the internet has been great at democratizing um, literature is just literature, just books yeah. is books. Um, but you know that being said, there's still in the New York Times Book Review there's still the crime column and the romance column. And, you know, the short story column that different people write. And then the individual reviews, you know, will be across the board. But there's, you know, they, they do segregate that stuff out. And there's crime magazines and everything. But, you know, just for, um, just to use uh, my new book as an example, The Low Desert, um, the surprise for me has been that the the reception in the national media has been to just treat it as as a book. You know, Time mm-hmm. Magazine and, and USA Today in those places, when when they talked about it as, you know, the, the best book of the month, they weren't saying, like, the best crime book. They just mm-hmm. said this is one of the best books of the month. Um, and I don't know if that has to do with, you know, just that I've been doing it for so long or, like, they just recognize the short story as a different kind of form. So, therefore, I don't know. Like, I have no idea. Um, but, you know, I, I think the ubiquity of what we talked about before has also made crime 
the language of American culture. Yeah. Like, this is the stuff that we're really interested mm-hmm. in. And four years of dealing with a grifter in office really plays a role in this. And I'm not, that's not even a joke. Like, we became intimate every night with a variety of white collar crimes. Mm-hmm. It's so true. Yeah. It's, I mean, in a lot of ways, like keeping up with the, uh, the Russia investigation was yeah. keeping up with like <laughs> connecting the dots between these crazy, like, wait, they had a meeting here yeah. and, they had, and so-and-so was there? Like, how is that not a crime? I mean, yeah. I, can't, I can't tell you how many times, you know, I tweeted over the four years that Trump was in office, like, these guys are terrible at crime. Yeah. Like, these are the so worst bad. criminals I've ever seen. And then when Trump got... Uh, booted out of office by uh, Joe Biden. Um, I got asked, I got interviewed for an article about like what what had Trump tried to steal from organized crime and what did he do successfully? And I was like, he only watched the first act of The Godfather. Like he, he never got to the end when, when Michael Corleone was, you know, in front of the Senate. <laughs> you know, like he never got to the end of Goodfellas when they all get caught. I mean, um, Todd, when you saw Rudy Giuliani's hair dye dripping down his face in front of the Four Seasons, I, could, I was like, I was "This like, is uh, a movie. This is written. It feels so yeah. written from crime fiction." Rudy Just Giuliani, like Rudy Giuliani's hair dye bleeding off of his face, I was like, "Well, that's an image I don't get to use now." That's <laughs> yeah, a, that's exactly. That's a shame because it was so like, it, what a great like. Put shoe polish in your hair before a press conference and have it melt off your face. Like, oh, it's a great idea. But I mean, so I love what you said because I think it really is true. Like when we say like, what is the genre of American culture? Like, are we really even going to pretend anymore that it's like a 700 page novel about an academic who's sleeping with his student? No, that's not the American (laughs) genre. It's not literary fiction. You know, I like those books on occasion, but like, this is it. This is the real stuff that this, I don't even consider this a literary genre anymore. It's just a genre that we live in that crosses all media and somebody's going to consume it. Yeah, I agree. Thank God, because I like this house. (laughs) (laughs) But also just think about in terms of the big books that you can think of in the last 10 years, like. Gone Girl swept the nation. Mm-hmm. And Gone Girl is a unreliable narrator crime thriller, you know? Or Sharp Objects, like the whole Gillian Flynn franchise. And then, of course, every single week, and again, not actually hyperbole on my part for the first time in eight years of doing the show, every single week, James <laughs> Patterson has a thriller in the top ten bestsellers in, in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, people just want to consume this stuff. They really okay. do. Well, I, I can go. How do we want to do this? Do we want to go like one, 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 or all three? What's our What's our strategy? One, one, here? one. Yeah, let's do okay. one, one, one. All right. So I will go first. Um, since we're on the, as I mentioned, I picked on nonfiction, and I, this pick is so random, but I was I laughed my ass off at my past self. I walked over to my true crime nonfiction area. And I stuck this here, like, at least a year ago. <laughs> the Big Short by Michael Lewis. Oh, love it. Love oh, it. Great yes, book. Great amazing book. book. And I was laughing because I, you know, it. I just looked in the cover. It's classified as, like, an, a book on economics and history. But, no, this right. is huge white-collar crime. And I thought our listeners should be reminded of this book because if you got into the GameStop situation a few weeks yeah. ago... 
you know, and you shit's still happening. <laughs> yeah, you don't really understand what shorting is or how it all works. Like, there's a whole book about it, and it's an awesome book, um, yeah. and a good movie too. So, yeah, The Big Short was my first pick. Yeah. That's interesting. I never read it. I never oh, read it. So I actually good. didn't like it's the really movie good. very much, so I'm, I know I'm, I'm on the well, that's fine. minority. But, but as you can imagine, but, yeah. the book is a lot, you know, it's freaking detailed. The mortgage bonds created from subprime home loans extended the logic <laughs> invented to address the problem of early repayment to cope with the problem of no repayment at all. Ooh. Sounds boring, but... It is not. Uh, Michael Lewis is an amazing writer. He understands how to tie these details that, into he, something that reads like a thriller. Yeah, he knows how to do it. He's really good. Yeah. So that was my first submission to this list. Great. All right. Who's next? Uh, I'll go because go I've got a very predictable one that I have a feeling is, <laughs> might be on one of your lists. Uh, Columbine. Uh, oh. It's it's one of those books that we. It's a true crime, you know, dissection of the. The Columbine killings, it's, we've talked about it so much. Uh, we've read it on the show and uh, reread it. We, uh, uh, Yeah, I mean, you know, and I was thinking about, like, what, yeah, for our listeners, I don't really think it's worth, like, repeating all the things that the, why this book is so good, except the, that as I've gotten older and as we've gotten farther away from it and as sh- school shootings and shootings have become only more ubiquitous, I think that my my particular, my love for this particular book is, like, very generational, um, because I think what Columbine did, uh, as, as an event was sort of rip open a safety net, um, in my worldview. Um, and I, you know, I think in the nineties growing up as a teenager in the nineties, cause I was exactly the same age as the, the Columbine killers. Um, there was this, there was this veneer were, of, that's right. Yeah, I was, I was. I was in my first year of college when it happened, but, yeah. but, but so I was actually 18. seven, but I was 17. So yeah. So, right. So I, they were, yeah. I was their exact age. Wow. And I think that, um, that there was this sense leading up to the killing, like the culturally, you know, there was, there was an attraction to, uh, a rebellious spirit to a teenage male rebellious spirit. That was, that was about like sort of getting ripping past the veneer of suburban, safety net and mm-hmm. and suburban malaise and the sort of the the what i remember feeling was like this this sort of false american front that was being fed to me and that you know there was this anarchistic uh energy that when columbine happened it sort of like exposed that energy for its dark heart right mm-hmm. and it sort of ripped it ripped away at once it, once it ripped away the perception that like america is this imperfectly safe place where people don't do awful things and your high school is you know very uh, coddling and 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 protective and it's like suddenly oh no it's not there's you know there's a there's violence and awfulness and then also on the flip side of that exposed the sort of impulses of a uh, those adolescent impulses um it for their darkness and for right. how how you know psychotic and how awful it is when you play video games where you're killing people you know like i grew up playing doom and you know and like the fun of those games which you know i, I i'm not saying those games shouldn't exist or whatever but the the flirtation that those things the, the 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 same elements that those things are flirting with can lead to somewhere so dark um and that that i don't know it was just such a like a, a rift in my mind when uh, when that happened and the book columbine really dissects that well i think and 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 revisits the the events of of, of that um 
that shooting um, and investigated. And, and like, for me, it was actually like sort of a, a healing moment to read the book, you know, mm -hmm. sort of like, oh, this is like putting these pieces, laying out all the pieces of this event for me. And that was like really helpful because it was traumatic at the time. Mm -hmm. And, and it continues to be traumatic. And I think that we've only further exposed those those same rifts, right? We've only, like, the, the idea that America is not a place where violence happens because we have, you know, safe cops and a good government obviously is a, feels false now, right? But in the late 90s, it didn't. Like, in the late 90s, you know, the Clinton era, there really was this sense that, like, well, America's, we're just going to keep progressing into greatness and there's going to keep, you know, everyone's going to keep making money and, and our government's only going to get better and uh, we don't, you know, we'll probably never go to war again. And you know, there was just all these things that have, you know, so Columbine for me is like such a touchstone as an event. And then this book itself um, really just dives deep into it. So anyway. You know what's is crazy about that is it's starting to feel like history. It's starting mm -hmm. to feel like a historical book. Right. It's been 20 years, right? About. Exactly. And. Now it's just an era where we're like, okay, what were the school shootings this year? Not like right. an event. So that book, I don't mean to undermine it at all. I just mean like desensitized and we expect that it's going to happen. You know, right. like we would be shocked. I mean, this is a pandemic upside there. I don't <laughs> think have been any of these events, but right. we would be shocked if next year there were no school shootings, right? Instead oh, of... Oh, I, I think there's going to be a rash of them. I'm, I'm not joking in the least. I think school sh there's going to be like 100 school shootings. Uh, I think kids are fucked up. I think their families are fucked up. I think people don't know how to act Depression is on anymore. the rise. Suicide is on uh, the rise. I'm, people, I'm yeah. really concerned about gun violence when people are free again. I mm. really am. I, I agree. You know what I was thinking about the other day... Um, Someone said something on our Twitter about our episode about Columbine where we brought all those high school kids on. And those high school kids are off to college now. Um, mm -hmm. Except they haven't gotten a chance to go to college yet. Mm -hmm. Like their first year of college has been on the internet. Was it their first year? Is that the I think so. Because we did that episode oh two years ago, right? Yeah, and they were and they, They're seniors. juniors at the time. Junior juniors, seniors, seniors yeah. Oh so those kids are off to college. Those kids are, you know, almost 20 now. The, Super sharp kids too. My gosh, I think about I think about them a lot actually. Well, and the other thing that came up related to this is the insurrection. I, I'm sure you guys saw this, but you know Nancy Pelosi made a statement that her whole staff knew how to like barricade the doors and all that right bullshit right. because they've done so many of these drills. And we have to remind ourselves that 20 years that's a long time. Everyone between mine and rider's age on down like this is just a part of our day-to-day -day life and expectation and what does that mean for american history and american culture yeah it's crazy the thing i think about <laughs> and this is probably why i write crime fiction is oh you know what is going to happen is someone's going to have two guys that are doing a school shooting one of them is going to be the guy that's on the outside the other one's going to be the guy that says all right Barricade all the doors. Let's block all the doors. Then he's going to pull out a gun. He's going to kill everyone in the room. Okay. Oh, Jesus. Todd, God, I don't want sick. to live in your mind. I... <laughs> it's just what I think about. Like, I think that... about the worst case scenarios. That's... Well, I do think I, I do think that's also still part of the craziness of Columbine is that there were two of them, right? Right. Like, because almost, I think every other shooting in America in one person. is is one person. It's yeah. it's it's it, and and the idea that two people could snap. And, 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 and what the book dissects very well is that they're in two different ways. Mm -hmm. right. It's super interesting to me. Um, 
and and just yeah it's endlessly fascinating like yeah. i i've read the book twice and i feel like reading it again because it's just yeah, yeah. It, it both of those books you guys have mentioned are two of my absolute favorites absolute touchstones of of nonfiction, just in general yeah like two of the best Nonfiction books the last hundred years. Oh in, well, in I got more comments, so you better go. Your turn. <laughs> um, well, I will add a novel to this. So the books that I picked um, may not necessarily be the the best crime novels of our entire lives, but for me, the ones that have had the most influence, crime books that have had the most influence on me as a as a writer and as a reader. So the first book I'm going to mention is uh, Out of Sight by Elmore Leonard. Yeah. Um, if you've seen the movie with George Clooney and J Lo. And you don't like it? Delete this podcast from your subscriptions. You're out. <laughs> you don't. You don't get it's to listen to movie. this for free if you don't like that movie. Like, go fuck yourself. It's a great fucking movie. The, movie. the trunk scene. Come on. The scene in the bar. Oh my god. You think of yourself as a girl? Is that how you think of yourself? Oh, it's so good. Okay, Todd, come back to us. Sorry. Um, <laughs> so, as you all know, um, I'm a huge Elmore Leonard fan. And Out of Sight is a book that he wrote when he was actually quite old. You know, he was, I think he was 70 when, when he wrote Out of Sight. Oh, wow. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a pretty simple story. A bank robber and the, the female United States federal marshal who's hunting for him. And they have a meeting in the trunk of a car after he breaks out of prison and they kidnap her for a moment where there's just an instant spark between the two of them. And so the book, just like the movie, is both a love story and a caper all at once. But for me, as a, as a writer of bad guys that I want you to feel empathy for, the main character of Jack Foley, a career bank robber, um, a guy that you should run away from if you saw him on the streets, but you love him. He's charming and interesting and funny and weird. And he can be violent. He can do all those things he has to do. But he lives by a certain kind of code. Oh, Elmore Leonard does it so well. No one's ever done it as well as Elmore Leonard wrote that character. And without Elmore Leonard writing characters like that, I'm working as an adver at an advertising agency as just like a, a really good copywriter. <laughs> um, and Quentin Tarantino films don't exist. And Quentin Tarantino films. There's the like US... a whole... He basically created a tonal genre. <laughs> like right. It, it's like that... that comedy gritty combo that yeah. you just can't beat like it's so good the it's... usa network doesn't exist <laughs> right <laughs> like right like burn notice never happened yep. all yeah. like, just pretty much any sort of ironic main character who's a little bit of a crook a little bit of a criminal but you kind of like him elmore yeah. leonard built that like that belongs to him and I felt like Out of Sight was the, the greatest distillation of his talents in a single book. I've read, you know, almost every single thing he's ever written. And sometimes he was great and sometimes he was crap. I'm happy to say that. Um, this book, he, he did it all. Um, and it got the adaptation finally that Elmore Leonard deserves. The, the Steven Soderbergh adaptation based on the Scott Frank script. Absolutely remarkable. Great filmmaking. And I know we're talking about the books. <laughs> But it's hard to separate the book from the film in my mind anymore because they did such a, an amazing so job on it. Um, so that book has had just an absolute profound impact on my writing life. And yeah. I'm so happy, as listeners will recall from like episode four, that I have five signed copies of it from Elmore, all to Tom. 
Well, there's also a if if people are interested in Elmore Leonard, there's an excellent audiobook of Kill Shot, uh, narrated by Ryder Strong. If anybody is interested, a very good book too, uh, by the way. Cool. Very good. Yeah, it's book. a great book. It's a great book. Yeah, I hadn't read it until I recorded the audiobook, and that was terrible you know. adaptation of it. Oh God, is a terrible. Adaptation. Did they? I, yeah, I know there was a movie made not long after I did the audiobook. I yeah, think, but I didn't terrible see adaptation. It. Too bad. He's, he's really had some crap done from his books. Because I think it's really easy to make it cliched. Yeah. You know, you got to have someone who's the equal as a screenwriter and the equal as a director to bring that vision really to, to, to full power. And Tarantino did it really well in, in Jackie Brown. Soderbergh did it really well in Out of Sight. Um, Get Shorty was fantastic. Justified, the TV show Justified, um, is an adaptation of Elmore Leonard. Um, season one had some of the best guest stars I've ever seen. Um, so, you know, there's some good stuff that's out there. Definitely. But Out of Sight's the best. All right. Cool. Julia, what's next on your list? Okay. Next, I'm going to choose a book that I hope is still a classic, but I don't know. I want to make sure people have read this if they're into true crime. I choose. Helter Skelter. Oh, oh my God. God. Jesus yes. Christ. Yes. I can't believe I forgot that. That might have been on my list if I had remembered um, it. Oh Helter Skelter. There's no other way to put this. This fucked me Bananas. up. Bananas. <laughs> it, it fucked up my whole family. Yeah. I read it on the beach. I remember exactly where I was because it's one of those books where you're just, you know, you're when you're reading it, it's so engrossing. It is, and yeah, it's mm-hmm. so readable. That you oh have to, you have to keep going. So, like, I spent a whole like week beach vacation or whatever, you know, surrounded by my family in a beautiful location. Like, oh my god, home the invasion. mansions are coming. Yeah. <laughs> it is so good. I forgot. Yeah. Oh my but god, I wanted I to. Yeah, yeah, I wanted to mention. I read it when it, I was like fourteen. Scared the of shit course. out of me. Really, I didn't read it until I think after Benton. So I was, I was like late twenties, early thirties when I read it. Oh, so good. But I think yeah. like. For me, home invasion is the scariest. Yeah, that's that's number one. There's nothing, you know, there's nothing that could scare me more than the idea of people, first of all, creeping in your house while you're sleeping and not killing you to plan killing you later, which is exactly what they did. Right. And yep. and just creeping in other people's houses just to practice creeping. Um, <laughs> that is so scary. What is scarier yeah. than that? Nothing. You know? uh, <laughs> And that it's true. This is where true crime really like vibrates. You know, like if you read this as a story, you'd be like, okay, well, that's completely insane. But knowing that this did happen is so disturbing um, Mm -hmm. that it's just a crazy page turner. A crazy. It also just speaks to one of my personal like biggest fears, (laughs) which is this the like the. The, the the countercultural like the sort of hangover from the counterculture right. of California, sure. you know, having grown up <clears throat> in the shadow of really drug abuse and uh, childhood abuse and, and sexual abuse that was going on in that era, like, but at the same time, growing up in the shadow that worships that era, like you know, like as a child of the eighties yep. in Northern California, you couldn't escape the idea that like. The 60s were the best mm-hmm. time in American history that we had missed the boat um, and that, that that the world was a darker, more awful place. And yet you also always knew the completely fried out, you know, the person who did acid one too many times down the street who was terrifying right. or the commune that <laughs> so failed right. or the kids that were growing up 
as having escaped the cult that they were abused in. I mean, this was my childhood. Like I knew all of those people personally. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that is a particular fear of mine, the sort of like, you know, and it's something I'm always endlessly fascinated with. And Helter Skelter is clearly the like ultimate uh, version of that. Yeah. And it's the most famous. And it's, I will say, know, I have an endless appetite, appetite for cults. You know, yes, like, because yes. like, it's the brainwashing, right? Yeah. The idea that people would be, put, and the fact that Manson himself did not commit the murders is right. still so fascinating. Yeah, it's just yeah. So if you can read this and not immediately follow the life stories of all the women who are involved, you're a stronger person than me. Here's here's the other thing though. Like I remember reading that and In Cold Blood at about the same time. Yep. And thinking In Cold Blood is bullshit. Like. This is the reality of this shit. In cold blood is not is not real, and it that has a, always been a thing blood. that's in my head. Is like, like I know that that crime happened, and I know that she wrote that or that Truman Capote wrote that book, um, but Helter Skelter, like, that's how it was. In cold blood, mm, a little eh, too literary for you. It's a little, it's a little creative nonfictiony, comparatively yeah. speaking. You know. Well, Capote said he had full recall of every conversation he had ever had. Just so yeah. you know. <laughs> I don't even know what I had for breakfast. But, and I'm not Truman Capote, so that makes that scans. <laughs> uh, All right, snacks, Ryder, what's your pick? Uh... Well, Jesus, I, I I might have actually picked Helter Skelter now that I think about it, but I forgot about Helter Skelter. Um, now I want to reread it. It doesn't have no, to be I your top a, three. I, I did another very predictable one that we've talked about on the show before, which is Devil in the White City by mm-hmm. Eric Larson. It's so good, yeah. And I think the reason this is so good for me is like, I was drawn into this book for all the reasons I think you're supposed to be drawn into this book, which is, you know, diving into the heart of a serial killer in a time when there wasn't a, you know, or diving into the mind and the life of a serial killer before there were serial killers, a sort of like invention of the American serial killer. And that like psychological examination and historical examination. But then the fact that it's alternating chapters with the history of the World's Fair in Chicago, which becomes a defining American moment, Mm -hmm. um, is just perfect. It's so... It's so modulated that you are willing to really like, I don't give a, I didn't give a crap about architecture when I read this book. By the end of the book, I felt like I understood what made architecture fascinating. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I I understood why Cracker Jacks were the way Cracker Jacks are and why Pabst Blue Ribbon is called Pabst Blue Ribbon and why, you know, my conception of uh, Native Americans and cowboys was the way it is. It's like so much of these sort of ephemera of American culture that I had absorbed without even realizing it are kind of explained and, and, and dissected by this book in a way that just blew my mind. And and the, and the only reason I was kept reading it, you know, because if somebody had said, read this book about the Chicago World's Fair and, and it'll teach you a lot about America, I'd be like, oh, okay, that sounds like a slog. Because that kind of would be a slog. But when you alternate it with this, you know, much more sort of purient interest in how, you know, this guy murdered these people and created this house of horrors, like he literally designed his own house of horrors to kill people. Uh, and was a doctor and ju- that like just it just kept me going and so mm-hmm. the fact that that he, that Larson was able to combine those two things so it has this greater narrative of America and American cultural creation with this micro narrative of the creation of an America's first serial killer I um 
I think that's an, uh, it's just such a stroke of genius. And I, I you know, I, like we, we, we read Killers of the Flower Moon, which so I don't good. think, I it, which is also awesome. But I, it, I don't think it could have existed without Devil in the White City. You know, no, I feel like I, Devil I in the White City was the first book I read that managed to take a sort of, you know, true crime, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, a lowbrow kind of approach and then bring it with it, this huge, you know, bigger subject and like combine them in sort of a, just a perfect peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Uh, yeah. I loved it. I just love it. It's just like, yeah. it's everything I, I want. In and if you crime. go to Chicago now too, like the last time I was in Chicago was, I guess, three years ago at this point. Like I had a day where I didn't have anything I had to do, like in between book signings, whatever. And I was like, I'm going to go look at some buildings. I'm going to go look right. to see where the White City was. Right. You know, it's so cool because so much of that stuff is still there. I mean, the White City's all gone. All that stuff got destroyed. But the parks and everything are still there. Um, well, Chicago is such an architectural yeah. town. Chicago's the history is town. just there. I mean, the buildings that those guys, the, the architects had built, you know. Like the, the whole, they're there. Yeah. And the whole history of, like, why skyscrapers were in Chicago because right. of the, 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 what is it, the limestone? Or, like, the, right. it was the nature of the st- the ground itself that uh, w- w- was the only way they could build buildings that tall. Like, it's just right. fascinating. fascinating. Like, I feel, I got such an education, and the whole time I was, like, a page turner. You know, right. like that, that to me is just such an accomplishment. And you get to say to people like, oh, are you enjoying your ice cream cone? Let me tell you about ice cream cones. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the, have you ever the, heard of a Ferris wheel? Do you know why the Ferris wheel is a thing? The, the ability to have intellectual superiority over people's uh, uh, food consumption is really an important part of <laughs> reading that Even book. down to like, do you remember what it goes, like, it gets into the, the, the history of the... How did I know that song? Why is that in my consciousness? Like, there's a place this... in France, France where the naked there. ladies dance. We all there's know a that. hole in the wall. <laughs> oh my god, it's so good. Yeah, I, I learned wow. a lot in that book. I mean, we put that book in our Hall of Fame, so I figured that one was was off off oh, okay. uh, off the radar. But that's just one of the greatest books that's ever been written. Period. Yeah. Ever. Wow. I, I got. I am gonna suggest a book for us to read. I won't name it right now, but this whole like subgenre of history, also crime fiction or story, yeah. it's so great. I have an endless thirst for it, so I would like the listeners to tell me more books that are that good. Yeah, or crime of the ancient marinara. <laughs> that too. That's another option. Uh, okay, awesome. So I have a nonfiction book for my next pick. Oh my gosh! Great. Good. Um, it is a book called Whitey Bulger by Kevin Cullen and Shelley Murphy. Mm. And it is this giant 600-page biography of the gangster Whitey Bulger who disappeared and was found living in a very nice apartment in Santa Monica about 10 years ago at this point. Um, but it's about how the government aided and abetted the rise of this gangster in Boston. It ties it in to the busing issues related to Boston in the 1970s, the social and geopolitical things going on in the Eastern Seaboard at the time, which allowed for this gangster to take part in things that the government was sanctioning. It gives you a real fundamental idea of the intricate relationship and the ecosystem that says, we're not going to prosecute this criminal, we're going to prosecute that criminal because this criminal gives us information that we can use against, say, African Americans instead. Um, and so it's this fascinating book about the influence of organized crime in America 
um, the way a guy who can be a little bit charming can get into bed with the FBI while out there literally stomping people's faces in and how he was essentially allowed to disappear um, only to be found by his neighbor who I think saw an episode of you know Unsolved Mysteries or something and called it in. Um, a, it's just a, an amazing book. Um, it's exhausting. Yeah, he's like the quintessential gangster figure. Yeah. yeah. Like East Coast, you know, outside of Boston, obviously, but like Providence. Like there's just a, yeah. there's a whole history of the, that kind of corruption. And he is the most yeah. like essential uh, Irish, right? It was the yeah. Irish, like yeah. Irish crime. Yeah. So like uh, The Departed is just. Yeah, The Departed is based on him. Completely yeah. based on him. There's so many movies and stories based on him. I feel like, uh, you know. Just yeah, no, and there's a whole genre. And a ton, there's a ton of books, but this one really is the um, is the book about him. Uh, mm-hmm. Cullen and Murphy were, um, and maybe still are, columnists at the Boston Globe. So they had done a lot of background on him before. It's just exhaustive reporting from every angle. Tons and tons of, of interviews on the record. Um, just, you know, I, I just devoured the book. I wrote a review of it for someone, you know, when it came out. Um, and it's... It's been a book I've gone back to over and over again when I feel like there's no way that X corruption could be allowed to happen. And then you realize that corruption is allowed to happen not just because someone else wants to get money, but oftentimes so someone else can persecute another person. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, that corruption above all else ends up being personal, that mm. a person is willing to risk certain things to get back at someone else, get revenge, get money, whatever it might be. It, the corruption is about that person first and foremost. Um, and when it comes to race and issues of class in and around Boston in that, in that time period, and when the gangster's brother is a, is a uh, state senator and then the president of a major university, it all gets a little bit more confusing. Um, so I just loved it. And if, if you're at all interested in... Um, in organized crime, this isn't this isn't the organized crime that you've been taught. This isn't this isn't the glamour of the Corleone family and the Godfather. This is the actual truth, and the truth is guys living in shitty houses, driving stolen cars, beating up people for their cigarette money. Like that's the truth. That's the majority of organized crime. These guys aren't millionaires. They're they're street thugs um, who operate with the complicity of law enforcement, typically for some other reason. Uh, so a great book that's really going to make Sounds you happy. Really yeah, it's super, super gratifying. <laughs> super uplifting. Read. Yeah. Well, People just love it because they, they come away from it just emboldened. Feeling good about America. <laughs> feel good about America. Feel good about people. Feel good about your neighbor who you think might be a criminal hiding out in a very nice apartment in Santa Monica. Well, another book that won't make you feel in any way happy at all is my final pick. <laughs> um, my third pick, I don't know if I've ever mentioned this, Um uh, the, but it's another used to be a classic, the ex- Executioner's Song by Norman Mailer. Oh, um, have yeah. you guys read it? Okay, no, so no. it is an epically long book, a thousand pages. Yeah, um, following um, the life of it's true, it's nonfiction um, of what is his name? I have it Gary right Gilmore. Here. Gary Gilmore, who uh, murdered a few people, was put on death row, and it was eventually executed, and it's completely exhaustive that's the only way to describe this book from like his childhood all the way through his criminal acts all the way through his time in prison being put on death row 
um, all this stays to his execution, and then it ends with his execution. Um, it includes newspaper stuff. It includes tri- all the trial stuff. It is so intense, and <laughs> I want to reread it now that it's like popped back into my mind because my primary memory of reading this book is Greg coming home, and I was like just sobbing and reading. <laughs> <laughs> like it was so it's a intense. great way to find your spouse yeah exactly exactly and i think i had just moved in too it was like this is what i do for fun <laughs> <laughs> uh, but like the intensity of the story and really like wrapping your mind around the death penalty and what it means and how torturous and long the process is and what it's like for someone to go through that um it's just so it's so good um, in my memory, although it's been a while. Um, it's, yeah. I never read it. I only intense. saw the movie and read every other article that ever existed about Gary Gilmore. <laughs> well, you might as well read the book. I know. Uh, <laughs> it's got the, the most information. The size is so daunting, though. You know, a thousand pages, like, that's a lot. Yeah, it's like, but it's like, it's like middle March. rip through it. It's like, you know, this. Guys. We, should have, we should have done executioner song to start the pandemic. Okay, next pandemic. <laughs> actually probably would have been more appropriate for the um, escapist impulse that everybody had. But yeah, it's really good, and I feel like it's kind of fallen off the radar. I've never heard another person recommend it to me, but it was, you know, Norm Miller's hugely popular writer at the time, and it was a big part of the debates around um, the death penalty. Right. So, uh, yeah, we should read it, and we should all think more about the death penalty you know, it's well, and you weird know, that it floats Norman, around in our culture. Norman Mailer has fallen very far out of fashion. Yes, um, yes. Primarily for who he was as a as a human. Right. Which is um, not a good person. I don't know that much about him. I know his name. but anyway. Not a good guy. Yeah. <laughs> not a decent human being. Um, but also, you know, he was at the forefront of new journalism. You know, mm-hmm. him and, and Didion were contemporaries. Um, and, you know, without, without Norman Mailer... Eric Larson's book doesn't exist. You know, like right. the you we're, we're talking about touchstones in literature here um, that I think people forget about. And you know, Norman Mailer probably has good reason to fall out of fashion right now. He's an old white guy who was a little bit of a racist and sexist and misogynist and was violent. Um, but I I do want to read Executioner's Song. I, I think that'd be <laughs> interesting to read. Yeah. Awesome. Um, all right, my final pick is uh, I've mentioned I've mentioned this book on, before, but I was trying to think of like you know specific like like I said earlier, I really like procedural, um, and what that means is I usually like cop procedural, like really sort of basic, and it's always this fine line. Like when it gets too, when it gets too you know, and this is probably just the tension you always feel in crime when it gets too over the top or when people are too heroic. Or um, like the, I, I just like it. I, in a weird way, I like my procedure. I like my my crime stories to be a little boring, like a little basic. <laughs> no, you know what I mean. Like if it's too like uh, if if the if it's a if it's a, for instance, I don't really have interest in an FBI person tracking down a serial killer who leaves clues for them in code. No. You know, like because <laughs> at, at that point it beca- it reaches this absurdist, and I understand that it's fun, but it reaches an absurdist level that is so detached from like what I think real crime work, real criminal, uh, real detective work is like, 
but I do like the detective work. So I like it when it has a certain element of randomness, a certain element of like day-to-day copness or FBI-ness. Mm. And uh, so the, you know, the most popular thing that I've talked about a lot before is the Bosch books for me do that. They walk that line pretty well. And almost from book to book, they can be hit or miss. Like there are times when it's like the poet and it's like, it is, it re, you know, there, there's one book where they go to China and it's organized, it's absurd. And so I like the Bosch books that are way more understated, but the book that I, I read just last year that I think is the, the, the perfect distillation of like, for me, the, that perfect uh, cop crime book is this book called Green Sun by uh, Kent Anderson. Um, and I've, I mentioned it on the podcast before. It is a masterpiece. It's uh, it's basically just a cop in Oakland in the 80s. And I think, you know, part of my attraction is that, you know, I grew up in Northern California in that era. My dad was a firefighter in San Francisco. So uh, the, the culture of cops at a time when there was a lot of racial tension, a lot of uh, gender tension about the introduction of women into the force. Um, and, you know, I, I grew up with a lot of that going on it, it, within my own household because my dad was a firefighter, like I said, and there was, there was a, a huge amount of incidents and um, legal stuff going on within the fire department of San Francisco at the time. So this book really hits home for me. It just came out, and I, I not surprisingly, the author was a cop in mm. Oakland in the 80s. Mm. And he was also a cop in Portland, which I guess this character, he has three novels about this character. So yeah. I need to go back and read the other ones because his first novel takes place in Vietnam, um, which I'm sure will also strike a chord because my dad was also in Vietnam. <laughs> and then uh, in Portland as a cop. And then this is the third in the series, but I jumped in with this and I loved it. It um, It is so well-written it is like I said. It's 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 a procedural, but it's not it's not like you know it's not following a serial. It's more just sort of basic beat cop existence, dealing with other cops, dealing with issues of um, you know in the in the most like contemporary terms. It's a book about community policing mm-hmm. versus uh, what, what would the all you know. Uh, being a racist cop <laughs> or being a, you know, right. being an abusive, a power mongering cop, the traditional, ver- and this is a model of, uh, you know, the, 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 her- the, what makes the, the central character heroic is his ability to integrate within the community. And mm-hmm. that is, and yet That's it is so still cool. a very, it's still a very gritty book. The cop is still, the, the central character is still questionable. The question, his morality is somewhat questionable. He has a dark history with Vietnam. He has, you know, so it's, it's to me like a, just a perfect book um, for anybody who's interested in, you know, a gritty cop crime story, but that isn't just, you know, he went and beat this guy up. Then he beat this person mm-hmm. up and solved the crime. It's much, it's much more nuanced than that. And it's something you can read in a in a contemporary context and it does it has even though it takes place in the 80s it is all about what is going on right now with police and um it's great just super fascinating yeah Yeah, ken anderson's first two books uh night dogs and sympathy for the devil are classics Mm -hmm. and the thing about ken anderson is he puts out a book about every 15 years right and each one is 450 pages long dense as shit And dark as fuck. Yeah, we are not recommending short books today, by the way. And you get done with it and you feel like you've walked the fucking beat. Yeah. You know, he is one of those guys that I think is not as well known because of the length of time between his books, obviously. But among writers, like I got told about Kent Anderson by uh, Scott Phillips, my, my friend Scott Phillips, the great noir writer who wrote The Ice Harvest. 
Uh, and he was like, oh, you got to read Kent Anderson. Like, he's the real deal. Yeah. And I read Night Dogs, and I was like, I don't even know why I'm bothering writing books. Like, this dude's this dude's it. And just yeah. intense. Every page is intense. Yeah, yeah, that's good shit. I haven't read Green Sun yet, though. It's really I, good. I, I bought it. I've got a signed copy from Poisoned Pen sitting right here on my shelf. Last time I was out there, I bought that book. I was like, oh, my God, Ken Anderson. Was he here? Did he mention me? Does he know I exist? Well, I can't wait to read it. I'm writing so many things down. Yeah, yeah. he's really good. Man, yeah, I got to read that. Um, well, my pick, and this is interesting because, in fact, uh, in our last episode, I think Ryder mentioned his love of the Bosch books. Um, and I mentioned my um, admiration for Dennis Lehane's book, Mystic River. And that is my last pick. I think Mystic River is the best crime novel in the last 25 years. Like, mm. I think without Mystic River, you don't see the majority of prestige crime shows mm -hmm. because he's writing them. Um, so, so like he's writing direct like he wrote impact the, he wrote the wire and he wrote boardwalk empire and he wrote bosh and um he also gone wrote, baby gone right or what yeah gone baby gone, baby gone. he wrote the outsider um so mystic river is an important book for me for several reasons the first is that he had been writing pretty traditional pi detective books and he essentially had an epiphany where he's like i want to combine the things I love the most, which is crime fiction and literary fiction, and tell a story that looks at a crime from a lot of different angles and talks about society in addition to the crime itself. Yeah. And, like, that's what I want to do. Like, that's mm -hmm. that's what I love to read. It's what I want to write, even in the small... We talked about this in our last episode as related to my short story, The Low Desert. Um, and the basic story of Mystic River is is very simple in a way in that what he does is he drops a pebble in the water and writes about how long it takes all the ripples to hit shore. Yeah. And the pebble that he drops in the water in Mystic River is three boys are playing in the street and a ped two pedophiles try to kidnap all three boys, but only one boy gets in the car. Hmm. And that one boy, there's, you know, the entire city goes looking for him eventually. Um, and I think he's he's abducted for like a week or something and then he's they he escapes and he comes back and um he's of course never the same and then the story jumps forward 30 years and um one of the boys uh in, in that was originally attempted to be kidnapped is sort of a small time boston gangster and his daughter is found murdered and they begin to think that the murderer was this other boy that had been abducted and what happens with that. Um, but it ties in social geopolitical stuff like about Whitey Bulger, essentially. You know, they, yeah. yeah, I was going to yeah. say, it's, it's, it's a very similar pick. Yeah, it steals <laughs> from Whitey Bulger's life in Mystic mm -hmm. River. It has a lot to do with about Southie and things like that. Um, yeah, that blue collar Boston crime, yeah. but still organized crime thing. Right. Yeah. But it's it's okay. also I didn't read the book, but just, just the movie is good too. And, yeah. and and I'm thinking about it, like what's so cool about it as opposed to a lot of other crime stories, it's not just about the cops. It's right. not just about the victims. It's not just about the organized crime. It goes 
it, it covers all of them. Yeah. yeah. You know, everybody, they're all sort of intertwined. So there's mm-hmm. a sense of how this affects an entire community yes, and all exactly. the different layers and the permit. Yeah, that's right. really, it's, that's cool. And how the place is the uh, a character. Like all mm-hmm. these people in the same closed ecosystem, basically. Super powerful novel. Great Great movie. I mean, I love that movie. Clint Eastwood yeah. was as at his absolute best as a director um, with Mystic River. I just, I just thought he did a great job with it. Yeah, um, Sean Penn's performance. Sean, Sean Penn is heartbreaking mm-hmm. in this book or in this movie. And Timothy Robbins is really good. And Kevin yeah. fucking Bacon is really good. Really, in it. Really, I'm gonna watch it tonight re-watch. for some light entertainment. Yeah. Yeah. Lawrence Fishburne is in it. He's great. And That's then right. Laura Linney is is the is the one. She, I think she got nominated for the Academy Award, but also I think um, is it Barbara Hershey, the other actress. Uh, there's another actress, and I think also might have been nominated for the Academy Award. It was a great book, great movie, um, but really a template of how to write um, a crime novel that's more than just cops and robbers. Mm-hmm. And right. so I, I really have always appreciated it over the years. Wow! And I think it, it, its influence changed other crime writers like our friend ivy pakoda for instance who we all went to grad school with like she's an heir to what dennis lehane is doing you know her book these women which is out now is up for the edgar award for best novel her book wonder valley her book visitation street all of them come from that same tree basically like she doesn't have her career unless dennis lehane started writing books like mystic river Um, and so i think it's just a, a real touchstone in in crime writing I'm going to read it. I'm going to read it before I watch the movie again. Because I do want to watch the movie again, but now I'm like, no, I should. Because I've, I've actually never read a Dennis Lehane book. I know he's, you know, he's hugely popular, especially yeah, in terms of Hollywood. Like, into, uh, the adaptations, He's he, he was the well from which a lot of adaptations came yeah. for a while. There was like, there was a period, I would say like 10 years ago, where it's always, always a Dennis Lehane book. Yeah, like he wrote Shelter on. Island, which became mm-hmm. the Leonardo DiCaprio movie mm-hmm. also. Um and, but you know he's been doing a ton of TV lately, uh, so you know like I said he was he's on staff and is a producer on The Outsider, the HBO show based on the Stephen King book. He worked on The Wire, um, Boardwalk Empire. He wrote I think on season two of Bosch or season three, something like that. Mm. Um, so he's been he's been doing a lot of TV and books lately, and you know his his influence is great. I mean he wrote he wrote one of the best scenes ever in The Wire. You know he wrote. He wrote the scene when Marlo Stanfield says, "My name is my name." <laughs> great. My great. I don't so I, I love the that wire book. enough. I can't believe you. You. How many times have you watched the wire? Oh Jesus! Like I know the wire better than I know my dad. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny because I. I think I only made it to season three. Oh my I, god! I liked it, but I'm not. I know I'm not like. I'm not one of those people. Yeah, I'm not like a huge. I do. There's so much I appreciate about The Wire, but uh, there's also a lot. Dude, I, I have, you uh, got to watch season four. Season four is the best TV in the history of TV. Season four, the school or the, the newspaper? The Which school. one's in the, the school. school? Okay. Season yeah. five, not as good. Season four, amazing. Amazing. <laughs> Love that show. Yeah, me too. God, my name is my name. <laughs> All right, well, maybe we should do a whole uh, he crime, also, crime TV show roundup. But yeah, also, Dennis sure. Lehane wrote another great Marlowe line, which is Marlowe says, you think it's one way, but it's the other way. And it's like, that's that's Dennis Lehane's philosophy <laughs> of crime writing. You think it's one way, but it's the other way. It's That's great. So simple. So simple. And Dennis Lehane's a good dude on top of it. So that's, that's a, the other important thing. Good things for good people. 
Well. All right, guys. Well, I feel like we covered uh, the history of American crime. Damn, <laughs> you went through. Yeah, we had serial killing. Well, no, did we didn't really. Yeah, did we have serial killing covered? Not yes, really. helter skelter. Helter skelter, but is that that's just city. one murder? I Devil guess they did murder too. Devil in the White City. You're right. Okay, cool. Uh, we had procedural cop. We had uh, child abduction. Yeah, a little bit We've of everything. We've got uh, yeah, yeah. We covered yeah. the gamut. So yeah. uh, get out there and start reading, people. Yeah. Don't don't do any crimes. Just read about it. Don't read about and don't it. do yeah. too much. You know, like read some other stuff too. Well, I mean, if you're going to start. The books of Todd Goldberg are always wonderful. That, that's my. That's good. Now, this is where you'd interrupt me, Ryder, and just say, Literary Disco is. Literary Disco is produced and edited by Justin Alvarez for Lit Hub Radio. You can reach out to us directly on Twitter at Literary Disco. Happy reading, everybody. Thanks for listening. <laughs>